0: and welcome to the beer of a show on x-ray fm which of course you can download in podcast form which i assume many of you are listening to us we join you while sheltering in our respective home studios in beautiful southeast portland different parts of beautiful southeast portland with me jeff alworth hi jeff hey patrick
1: how's it going oh i'm pretty good uh all things considered uh, how, how's the sheltering in place treating you these days? Yeah, you know, sheltering in place. It's—I uh, I think it's the new normal. We're all kind of adapting to it. Social animals locked up apart from each yeah. other. But, you know, getting getting okay. by. How, how are you doing? Yeah,
0: I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Oregon is starting to open up, but our counties, the Portland metro area counties, not so much yet. Although some things are opening. That's right. Retail retail stores and stuff are more of them are opening now.
1: Yeah, so a little bit of breathing room. Um, we've got since uh, it's a feature of our podcast. We have a little bit of a cloudy day out there, which uh, has been all week. So uh, I think that's probably got people a little bit depressive. Although I, I enjoy it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't mind it at all, except that it kind of keeps the kids inside, which is bad because uh, they're inside <laughs> too much already. Right. But uh, but I live by uh, a popular park and a popular sort of a dual park. Uh, uh, a nice park, and then another park that's on the river where you can access the river. And um, that means that when the weather gets really nice, people just flood into my neighborhood. So um, I kind of enjoy the respite from that a little bit. Especially now, I don't know if you've seen the river. The river is super swollen these days because it's it's we've had some hot weather, so a lot of snow melt means that there's not a lot of beach left. So people are crowding down trying to find some beach and there's none there.
1: Yeah, and then we have, we've had uh, this kind of wetter uh, May, so... Um, yeah, we, it's, it's melting, and then we're getting rain, so full, yeah. that makes for four rivers. Okay, by the way, you are Patrick Emerson, and you're a <sighs> professor of economics at Oregon State University, just to conclude our introductions.
0: Well, yeah, and you, Jeff Allworth, write books. You wrote The Beer Bible, The Widmer Way, Secrets of Master Brewers, so I should mention that.
1: All right. <coughs> uh, for, those, for those who, who there's a rare people tuning in for the first time.
0: That's right. This is the Pure Funnel Show. Uh, thanks to X-Ray FM for um, continuing to host our show. That's right. It's sad that we can't be in their studios.
1: Yeah, but it's good that we have uh, folks like X-Ray reporting news and offering entertainment while we're all cooped up. So, uh, Godspeed, X-Ray FM.
0: That's right. Think about uh uh, sending them a bone or two. If you have, have you have any to spare?
1: That's right. Uh, they They're just,
0: listener-sponsored radio.
1: They they are, and they just had a fun drive, which we were kind of off the air and didn't get to promote. So let's do it now. Go go go! Give to X Ray FM. I'm sure they yeah. Would appreciate there's
0: never it. a bad time to give. You don't have to wait for the fun drive. <laughs> That's right. Listener-sponsored sponsored radio.
1: Just you'll surprise them if you give them money now, and it'll be delightful for them. So. <laughs>
0: Yeah, by the way, speaking of giving people money, I'm, I'm getting dangerously low on my, uh, my stock of beer, yeah. so I'm going to have to, I'm gonna have to um, maybe do a new delivery, or uh, I got a, uh, a line from uh, Tobias Hahn, who's part of the Rosenstadt people, uh, about where I can buy it in my neighborhood, so I might just trundle on down and get some Rosenstadt Hellas. There you go. All right, well, we should probably jump into the show because we have um, kind of a long and exciting interview to, uh, today. Uh, We have a special show as we sit down to visit with Breakside founder Scott Lawrence and his brewmaster Ben Edmonds. Uh, On the day Jeff recorded this interview, Breakside was near the end of the last day of their 10th year in business. Jeff talks with Scott and Ben about those 10 years, how Breakside, born in a different era, has grown and changed, and what's in store for them as their big celebration has been interrupted by world events. This is a fascinating discussion, and even if you know the brewery well, you will learn something new here. The interview will take the whole length of the show, so we'll turn to it now and we'll return to our regular format next week. So why don't you go ahead and uh, and launch us, Jeff?
1: We we just did a nice overview, and because of the coronavirus, I think it kind of put a little different uh, cast to the whole thing. And uh, it's a brewery I know well. You know this brewery well, as uh, yeah. too. Uh, and yet they told me a lot of stuff I don't know, including, and a little teaser here to stick with it to the end, um, <laughs> a new, uh, a new piece of equipment they recently purchased, which will change the way uh, they deliver beer to you. And I believe, uh, we will be breaking the news. So that's fun.
0: Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, that's a good tease. Thank you.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much. Try to, which we, we here at the, uh, beer show, we try to deliver. Um, yes. one thing I, I will, we will go to them post haste. But one thing I want to do is I forgot to introduce a quote and I was going to have them both reflect on it, uh, and I failed to do so. And the the big reveal was who said it. So I'm going to do that just now because it really cracks me up, and it kind of puts this whole thing in context. It was written, I will say, in on uh, March in March 2010. And the quote is this: <laughs> "The U.S. craft brewing industry has already had a few shakeouts, and Portland's is just around the corner. I fear for the Portland brew pubs, and I fear for startup breweries who hope to make a go of it through draft sales alone. I hope I'm wrong." But I'll be surprised if the city can handle 40 plus breweries and brew pubs <laughs> sustainably. So that 10 years ago. 10 years ago. So that quote came from uh, a young guy who had just been hired to start work as the brewer of a new brewery called Breakside. And that was Ben Edmonds writing in uh, yeah. the new school. And of course, things have changed. The thing is, despite. That's seeming like a setup quote. He his point is actually good, and if you go, if you uh, want to go and find that on the New School, you will see that a lot of his examples of breweries that were opening at the time actually are no longer in business. So in in many ways he he was prescient, mm-hmm. though he was wrong about this city not being able to handle more than forty breweries. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that one he got wrong. A little bit off. <laughs> but but aside from that, uh, it is quite a successful brewery, and it was a wonderful interview. So we will just go to that now and let you hear what we had to say all right let's do it all right uh, i am here uh remotely uh with scott lawrence and ben Edmonds, the owner and founding brewer of breakside brewery here in portland oregon hello guys hey hey jeff this is i just learned before we hit record the final day of the 10th year of uh, Breakside's tenure here in Portland, Oregon. Is that, do I have that right?
2: You do. You do. Yeah, we opened our doors and officially where we were taking money from folks uh, May 14th of
3: 2010. It's been a highway robbery for 10 years. <laughs> well, we,
2: <laughs> we, had a, we didn't have a lot of experience in how to run a restaurant, so we did a couple of nights before that of soft opening where friends and family came in and it was all free. So well, I don't consider that when we were open for business when we weren't making anything. Right, 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 right. Yeah.
1: yeah, I think that's fair. I think yeah. we all agree. It's when you pin the first dollar up on your wall. That, that's when the clock starts. So let's, let's back up a little bit. I think definitely folks in uh, the Pacific Northwest know you guys. And I think nationally, you're starting to become fairly well known. So rather than give a long preamble about who you are, which will emerge over time, why don't we just start and go back to, uh, I guess, 2009 or earlier? I'm not sure when you want to start that story, Scott. Yeah. And talk about, uh, you know, what what was going on, uh, what you were thinking of in terms of a brewery. I, would, I, I did do a little uh, research and just to kind of set the stage. There were only 1,800 breweries in the United States uh, in 2010 and craft beer at that time only had 4.9% of the overall beer market share. So, you know, we think of that as a relatively recent period of the craft beer era, and yet uh, nationally, it was still, uh, it, it had the explosion that would come in the next decade hadn't yet arrived. So with that kind of overview, why don't you walk us through uh, your revision and, and how Breakside got started?
2: For me, it was really about wanting to create a job for myself where I could eat and drink with friends for a living. You know, I just I, I, loved that. I just love eating and drinking with friends and I wanted to make that my job. And I had thought about it and talked about it for a number of years and wasn't sure what that meant. And I had recently moved, I moved to Portland, Oregon in February of 09, uh, kind of came here on a lark and didn't plan on staying, fell in love with it, stayed. And that summer in July, I went on a kayaking trip in Alaska, in Juneau, north of Juneau, like drove drove north of Juneau to where the road ends and all electricity runs out and we paddled north into the wilderness for a few days with a, a couple of my best friends. And you know, after doing that, after uh, dodging some whales and some grizzlies and having some wild encounters, we went to the Alaskan brewery and we drank ourselves silly. I mean, literally, I, I overindulged at the Alaskan brewery's uh, headquarters in Juneau and, while, while while it while drunk frankly i was like my buddy bill looked at me he's like why are you grinning so big and i was like well this is what i'm doing and he's like what do you mean i was like no this is what i'm doing i'm quitting my job and opening a brewery he's like oh sure you are sure you are and i like i was like i am and i woke up the next morning and i i had a big headache and i just said i'm doing that i'm doing this i'm opening a brewery and i I put it on my personal Facebook page. Told my friends and family I was going to quit my job and open a brewery. Um, got back to Portland from that trip in uh, early August. I don't. Know, it was you know August 10th or something like that, ish of, of 2009. And I thought, okay, this is probably going to take me, you know, three to four years to get everything planned out, meet the right people, you know, get everything going before we could get open because my full restaurant experience at the time was working for about five or six months at an applebee's during college um and i just you know i didn't have any experience didn't have any know-how but i I fancied myself a good eater and drinker and you know figured i could get it done and uh actually just a couple weeks later i was like you know i I wonder where we could use a new brewery in portland and i pulled up the map and of the 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 map that shows where all the breweries are in the city and i I found two big holes and one was cellwood and one was northeast portland and I rode my bike to both, and the day I rode my bike to Northeast Portland, I found our Deacon Pub, and huh. I, I yeah, which was crazy. And it, it had it had dirt floors in it. Um, it needed you know a ton of work. It Didn't have bathrooms. Didn't we I mean, didn't have anything in it. Um,
3: had it been like
2: it had been a corner store in a bakery. Like
3: Fifteen years since anything. Had it had been, been a long time. Yeah. yeah, it
2: had been open for a long time. But it, the building it had been a corner store as far back as like 1910 or something to that effect. And a bakery at one point too, um, but I loved the I loved the location. I saw that there were a lot of you know new young families moving into the neighborhood, and just I don't know, there wasn't anything else by it. And I was like, hey, we're in Portland. Everybody wants a a brew pub in their neighborhood they can walk or ride their bike to. So I actually signed the lease on the building. Uh, it was Labor Day weekend, so uh, less than four weeks after I got back from my Alaska trip.
1: What was your job, and where did you move from?
2: I moved here from Charleston, South Carolina, uh, and I sold software that most major nonprofits run on. Um, and my territory was New York city. So I could live anywhere as long as I had the internet and the airport. And, you know, I didn't know anybody in Oregon at the time either. When I, when I came out to visit all my friends were in South Carolina.
1: So, uh, you, you know very little about, uh, the, the beer business, you don't know anybody who's in the beer business, uh, and now you have a storefront. Um, <laughs> uh, take us from there. Well, I you know I Ben might be able to actually shed light on
2: this a little bit, but I remember to myself, I said, hey, I'm, I'm going to be super detailed and thorough on this. I'm going to meet at least 10 potential head brewers, 10 potential head chefs, and I, I connected with Ezra uh, one way or another. I'm not sure how, and went to uh, this was probably in like in September, or October of oh9 in that ballpark. And I went to Ben was Ben was actually teaching a class, Oregon Beer Odyssey class. I don't remember on what styles it was on or anything like that, but it was just a class on beer drinking and tasting, and and it was at Bailey's Tavern. And I went there with Ezra and met Ben. Um, and I don't know if I've met him briefly before then or not, but. You know, that's when I met him, and I just started figuring things out. And through that process, I mean, I really Ben was the first potential brewer I met. Uh, he and Sean White, I met at maybe the same time. And 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 Ben, you know, I talked to him about what I was going to do, and uh, before he'd ever had any professional brewing experience, uh, took you know took the job that I wasn't sure what 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 it was or what we were offering, but kind of said, "Yeah, sure, I'll work with you." And and same thing with chef i hired uh i met a guy named mike delaney who had been the chef, sous chef at bridgeport and then the sous chef at pelican and i he was the first oh. chef i met and i hired him for our deacon place the first person i met i hired out of gut instinct and he like ben is you know 10 years later is is still with us
1: uh so ben we've talked to you a little bit about your background you were a home brewer before you became uh the the brewer there at break side, were you looking for a brewing, a professional brewing job at the time?
3: Yeah, I had uh, finished Siebel. I started as a home brewer, and a couple of friends and I had patched this idea that we were going to open a brewery. One of us would take care of kitchen, one would take care of business, one would take care of brewing, and I was going to be the brewing side. I, I, so I held my end of the bargain and went to brewing school to kind of get that training. And while I was in brewing school, the two guys decided they really didn't like each other, didn't want to work together. So those plans fell through, but I had at that point finished brewing school, so I'm back in Portland now trying to kind of uh, make the move into the beer industry professionally, and it you know, as it often happens, there's kind of numerous opportunities that are trying. you're trying to pursue all at once when you're kind of um, looking for work, and this is, you know, to your point, Jeff, this is 2009, 2010, there's only 1800 breweries, there are not many brewing jobs. You know, and those brewing jobs are much harder to come by than they are today. Right. And the advice when people tell me now that they're interested in becoming a brewer, you know, should I go to brewing school or should I try and get a job in the beer industry? It's very different now than it was 10 years ago. But anyhow, uh, yeah, I had not. I, so I had decided to start keep doing some beer education, teaching these classes uh, under the guise of Oregon Beer Odyssey. I was actually writing a column for the new school, um, trying to just kind of get my feet wet in the beer industry. I was offered some part time work at Upright. Uh, that was a little bit later on, after Breakside was kind of after I would met Scott, but before Breakside was fully open. So it was kind of all these things coming together at once. But um, yeah, fundamentally, I think it was. I think it was a little later than that. I think it was January that we met. I think it was after 2010 because I was gone that fall in brewing school. Um, but anyway, you know, that's <laughs> not as important. But yeah, it was early 2010 <laughs> that I think I met Scott and uh yeah since then at some point you know i think he had scared enough other uh people off of the concept of what this uh, little brewery was going to be uh that i was the only man left standing
1: (laughs) yeah so to that point a lot of people when they dream of opening a a brewery are you know fascinated with the beer itself and have uh, a lot of times they've they've they brewed themselves and they have a really strong idea of what kind of beer they're going to make and like what the brewery will look like and what the feel will be like. Um, Scott, did you, uh, <laughs> it sounded like you were much more kind of green to this whole thing. Did you have a clear sense of that? And and if not, how did, how did that develop? Well,
2: you know, it definitely green to like the beer making process and that, but i have spent i spent a lot of time in most major cities in the u.s and had a really good expense account through my job and so i had uh, just great times eating and drinking at the best places the country had to offer and europe had to offer for that matter so I, i i found it you know for me i wanted to have a place that people wanted to sit in and be able to hang out and have a good time and that was kind of my first my first priority and Hence that decomplace. I mean, I love the inside, the different levels, and it is a shitty place for a brewery. The brewery's in the basement. I mean, we had to carry tanks down the stairs. I mean, it was, you know, so it wasn't well thought out from that regard. But you know, aesthetically, I've always thought it was like a, a, was a pleasing space to uh, to enjoy beer.
3: I think I can jump in there for a section, I think that one thing that is unique about uh scott and i think it's you know been a big part of breakside's success is i think that a lot of people right there's kind of these two narratives that we have about who enters the beer industry you only you have people who are you know, the passionate sort the brewers who home brewers or journeyman brewers who want to own their own place that want to follow for the passion for the beer alone And then you have these kind of opportunists, these people who see that craft beer is this big money, there's big money to be made. And I think that leaves out a big part of the story of people who come at it or potentially come at it from a hospitality point of view, an experience for the customer point of view. And I think that's like, that's something that doesn't get talked about. And I think it's a big part of, honestly, why Beacon did so well early on, you know, was. A lot about customer experience, about about creating those experiences—the good food, the good beer, the good environment—and I think that's um, some. I think that more than anything, even if it wasn't his background before we opened, was what Scott really his vision was for, for the place, and always has
1: been. Yeah, we should we should I I think stop and for folks who are not familiar with Portland, note that the the area you located in is in the. Uh, fairly far north part of portland uh just in the northeast but but north of downtown quite a ways uh it's a working class neighborhood and your the the Deacom the original location is in a little uh, area of uh, commercial infrastructure that was basically abandoned right uh when you when you guys took it over there wasn't a whole lot going on there am i right about that
2: yeah there were a couple shops that our building was completely abandoned the firehouse restaurant across the street had just opened recently and there was a pizza shop, you know, and then everything else, there was nothing else commercialized in that whole area.
1: It was, uh, I think what developers sometimes call an uh, underserved area of the city. And it Mm -hmm. really, I think, helped create the kind of vibe of Decom that persists to this day of it being a neighborhood place and you <laughs> one nice thing was you really had the run of the place because there were not very many other options so people in the in the neighborhood i think were ha, have always struck me as being really appreciative that they had a local pub to go to
2: they were they were always super great to us and 3 years in when it was always so busy from people coming over from all other parts of the city and coming in with suitcases after they just gotten in from the airport of the our neighborhood folks started to get a little annoyed that we were getting a little too popular.
1: parking, (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah. their parking went away, but it's, it's it's leveled back out now as we open that Northwest spot.
1: Right. So then you were hired and you guys, now you're a brewery, so you're gonna have to make beer. What were you thinking? What was Portland like at the time? Uh, You know, what kind of beer was popular and what kind of niche did you see for yourself and what kind of beer did you want to brew and how did, how did you conceive of all that?
2: I'll, I'll give a short answer to start when Ben talked about the beer. Uh, when we were opening as well, like you know, we we didn't know. I didn't know what the TTV was, Jeff.
3: We know who they are now. We know who they are now. They are
2: now but <laughs> the TTV, like, asked me like two months or a month and a half, two months before we are going to open, like, how would you get your TTV license so fast? And I literally said, what's the TTV? <laughs> and, um, so we weren't allowed to make our own beer for like the first five months we were in operation because we didn't have that license. That's kind of how some of that went. You know, I didn't, this wasn't a well-funded project. You know, I, I sold my car, rode my bike to work, emptied my 401k. You know, we just kind of figured it out as we went, and that was one of the big things. Um, on, on the beer side, all I ever really wanted from my standpoint, love, i I love, I want a beer that makes you want to take another sip. Early on, I remember getting out here, and some of the IPAs, for me, were were so aggressively hopped I had to take a sip. I felt like I had to take a sip of water between taking taking sips of my beer, and I just always wanted beers that were that were easy drinking.
1: Yeah, Ben. Before you talk about the beer, I want to just back up and say, so did you fund this yourself? It is a small brewery. Uh, it was a three-barrel system, the the original Deacum one. Is that how you got started?
2: Yeah, yeah, I funded it a hundred percent myself. I couldn't get a single friend or family member to give me even five hundred <laughs> um, dollars. Would give me anything. I mean, I've got a bunch of friends now that have, have they make jokes when we're together about wish, wishing they had given me a few bucks. But at the time, like, it was it was everything. I mean, I I got to where I literally couldn't afford. I remember one part. I had just started dating my now wife, and I went across the street to try to buy some eggs, and I I didn't have any cash. I had my debit card and all I was buying was eggs. They were five bucks and my debit card didn't work. And that was all the money I had in the world. And I couldn't even buy eggs. And, you know, I, I wasn't paying myself. I was riding a bike to work and I emptied out every single penny I had in any savings anywhere. Wow. And so, I, you know, everything on the line. And, you know, I, we, we came so close to going under so many times. I mean, it was I've I've told people this. but I mean, it's been I've said it before, but, like, you know, I couldn't sleep at night without listening to podcasts because I couldn't get work and stress into my mind. And at one point, most of my chest hairs actually, literally, turned white out of scrap. <laughs> and most of them are back to black now. The white ones are just because I'm old now. <laughs>
1: wow. Uh, all right, uh, Ben, talk about the beer. Were you were you yeah. tasked, Ben, with did did uh, Scott say to you, okay, now we have a brewery figured out?
3: I don't think it was ever quite like that. I mean, we started with such a small location, it was such a small amount of brewing capacity. You know, we had 12 taps, so a lot of those were guest taps early on. I mean, for the first until we started brewing, they were all guest taps. And you know, I definitely came in with the mentality of doing something that was trying to do a beer program that was fun, wide ranging, and um, distinct from what other brew pubs were doing in town. Um, and whether even that was just slight, you know slight differences in terms of the styles that we were selecting. And we opened with a wit beer and an Irish stout and a goza and beers that, you know, that were not common group hub beers around uh, the Northwest at the time. I mean, not to say that they weren't being produced by others at all. They were, but I don't think you walked into your average group hub and found those. Of course we made IPA. You know, we made uh, a beer called Aztec, which was a strong ale with chocolate and chilies. But from very early on, you know, we had a small brew house, we had a lot of taps to fill, as we added more fermenters, the name of the game really became kind of this big umbrella approach of covering a big range of styles, experimentation with new styles, um, and just trying to do something that was a little different from the, at the time, 15 other brew pubs in town.
1: In those early years, how much of the beer that you were making was sold on-site. Was it all sold on-site or were you selling around town as well?
3: We would occasionally drop a keg off for an event. You know, we would do, I think we did the Holiday Ale Fest one year and we would do events at like, you know, individual bar kind of like specialty night type things but 95% of what we were making, 99% of what we were yeah. making was sold right
1: on-site. So, most, uh, since it was a pub and your your whole business model was a pub model, uh, you had real interaction with all the people who were drinking your beer could mm-hmm. could you tell i, I know I, I i remember and i have such a crappy memory memory i'm not totally sure this is still accurate but uh, i remember that you hated making aztec is that right ben yeah i
3: didn't i never really liked making the base the base version of that beer
1: so that's a funny thing when you're when you're making so many beers and putting them out there a few of them are going to become popular uh and you you know you may you may not love them yourself but then you're and, and you end up having to make them all the time what were you you know what what was it like in portland in uh, 2010 2011 2012 what were people interested in and you know what were you selling and what was that how was that whole dynamic going in, in a decade ago that's a great question
3: part of it is conditioned by us being small and i think about it like from the time when we were small to when we first started to grow this kind of difference right where like when we were small at the pub level, we I could pretty much brew anything. As long as there was breaks at IPA was on tap, as long as we had our Hoppy Amber on tap, as long as we had one darkish beer on tap, the other six to seven taps that I could fill could be anything. Again, to Scott's credit, it was there was not a lot of, hey, we need to conform to zero. We need to conform with what other group pubs do, or we need to be offering this type of style because we made this once before. It was a lot more... Uh, forward-looking, I think, from both of our ends, even if we didn't think of it in those terms, but, like, we could just rotate beers and do new styles and play around and have a a rotating tap list. That said, you know, obviously IPA sold the best.
2: Yeah, I wonder wonder how things have changed. I remember, you know, Jeff, at the time, I know the first two and a half years or so, I bartended five, six days a week, and I, I mean, I always remember people coming in and just being like, well, just give me your happiest beer like the people that, <laughs> i always hated that order i'm like what do you mean by hobby like but like you know that was just something that was the people were always yeah. still see, still seeking out I don't, I don't know how that's changed now but it's remember that all the time from
3: working the bar well and by the time we eventually expanded i mean i think we became actually in some ways at least at the product certainly production level much more um trying to mean market savvy about what styles to put out in volume you know like we knew that we had to have beer move and so Favoring hoppy styles early on at the production level was kind of as much based on, you know, market strategy and sales strategy, anything, but the pub still remained always kind of a bastion of like experimentation. But, you know, there was not much appetite for lager. We weren't making any lagers on and weren't being asked to make lager on a regular basis. Um, I mean, the stuff that I think it was just the hoppy beers that kind of would, move a little faster than the other beers, but at the pub level, it's so
1: hard to tell sometimes. Though, uh, one of your early uh, kind of dual flagships was your Pilsner, uh, so that must have been selling well. That was only once we opened production. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, could, yeah I didn't think we had that bill. We made a few Pilsners
3: over the years at the pub in 2010, 2011, 2012, but, I mean, I didn't have enough tank space to be able to make it regularly. Uh-huh. make any longer, regularly. So, really, breaks that Pilsner uh you know that's a recipe that jacob leonard and i designed together as we were opening up uh milwaukee three years later
1: uh so milwaukee your production for for folks who don't know about this uh you opened a second uh brewery which was a production space in an industrial area far south of the city so like the total opposite direction and that was that was 2013
2: yeah and to be
1: to be fair it's about a
2: 45 minute bike ride away it's We say far south and I've lived in like Chicago and Dallas and you think of like, you know, super far away. It's like from the center of downtown Portland, it's like seven miles. Um, But yeah, for us in Portland where we don't leave our neighborhoods very often, it is far, far away. And we we actually, we started looking for that in early, like end of Q1, start of Q2 of 2012 and uh, signed the lease, I think in June of 2012 and actually took over the space, you know, that summer and had our first beers coming out of there in December of December twelve, January thirteen.
1: At some point, Breakside started to be known as uh, a brewery that did uh, hops and IPAs really well. When did that When did that association start? And was that with Breakside IPA? Uh, was it? I'm not sure when Wanderlust came out. Your other kind of co-flagship. What What was that evolution? How did you kind of shift from being known as this quirky experimental brewery to uh, being famous for your IPAs?
3: I think that's a long, not a long progression, but I think it's a, it's a storied progression of like 2013 and 14. It's those first two years that we spent in production. I mean, again, we always had Brakes IPA on tap at the pub, but that was the only place you got it. And You know, when we did events around town back in 2011, 2012, even 2010, we never took the IPA. Right. So we couldn't I would run out of it at the pub if we if we took it a single keg off for an event. So really as a market phenomenon, breaks at IPA gets introduced in early twenty thirteen. We had limited hop contracts. You know, there was only so much that we could make. We I forget what the numbers were at the time, but we were limited to something like maybe, you know, a thousand, a thousand, thousand barrels a thousand of barrels thousand barrels IPA. Yeah. That's where Wonderless came from, right? We we developed Wonderlust because
2: we didn't have enough Citra to make our to make breaks that IPA. And so yeah, so,
3: so we were meeting, you know, Melita Melitas who is our wholesaler and has been an awesome partner for the last nine years, eight years of ours now, knew that there was only so much IPA that we could produce. We were putting it in twenty twos, um, as of probably May of twenty thirteen, but we were really only able to do again a thousand barrels a year, so less than a hundred barrels a month of that beer. And so, you know, when you think about the Portland market uh, That's not enough IPA to really create a huge wave, right? It's right. you know it'll sell and it'll disappear very quickly. You know if it's if it's fresh and a few a few accounts can make that disappear relatively fast. So, yeah, I remember taking Scott and I going kayaking in the summer of 2013. We just rented kayaks and did like kind of the loop around Ross Island and. I, we were talking about, you know, the fact that we weren't going to hit our growth goals, our expansion goals, our first year in production, we we're going to be a little bit short. And part of that was because we just didn't pay enough poppy beer because uh, that was what people wanted. And so that's where we kind of came up with the idea of releasing a second IPA. And again, I mentioned the leaders, they were, had been fantastic for us over the years though, at first back in 2012, they said, well, you guys can't have two IPAs, that'll be too confusing for people."
1: And, uh, <laughs> uh time, this is a yeah well, this yeah well they changed, changed
3: rapidly i mean and i think wanderlust was uh which came out in either september october of 2013 uh really caught people's attention a little bit more more it, it debuted as a it had a nice looking bottle the map with the state of oregon on it it was a mosaic for ipa and i think that really then kind of ha- helped uh establish our bona fides as a hoppy beer producer, people really, I think, found that to be a very aromatic, forward-looking, no crystal malt IPA. Um, And yeah, those two beers then, as our hop contracts expanded as we planned for growth, uh, allowed us to grow more in 2014. But I mean, there's no doubt that uh, it was the Great American Beer Festival in 2014 when we saw... That, that was a huge game changer for us in terms of just how the IPAs, both Wanderlust and Breakside IPA, especially expected IPA IPA's gold.
1: Yeah, so you're referring to the gold you won in the American IPA category there, for those who are not uh, super fans and follow the dates. Um, that was when Breakside kind of got put on everyone's map.
3: Yeah, and I think there's lots of breweries who, who won gold medals in, in American IPA and other categories, but there was something about the timing of it If you traveled to Portland in September of 2014 and went into any bar in town, I'll ask you this as a portlander, what was the IPA that everyone wanted? Boy,
1: 2014. uh, Was it RPM? Was that when RPM was big? RPM was murdering everything. Everything. (laughs) So this is for folks, again, outside of Oregon. Boneyard RPM was one of the first real... Uh, watershed IPAs that hit Oregon and it was for a few years ubiquitous you mm-hmm. found it everywhere so apparently it was this era what would have been the IPA the ubiquitous IPA before that in Portland do you think oh
3: uh, yeah that just said it total dom oh yeah of course total dom okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. so you've had you had total dom that's an inc- that's incasti it was a Melita beer Suddenly, all those IPA tap handles get taken by a point blank here, right? And these are pull trailers in the uh, Portland area, and nothing is stopping our cannabis play. You can't like you can't get bars to change it, and I really do think that Breaks IPA winning gold at GABF in twenty fourteen gave Miletus an RPM killer. I with all respect Tony oh. Lawrence. Oh yeah, or, or and, like a, a leveler. I mean, RPM yeah, yeah, certainly yeah. didn't I mean, <laughs> right But it gave Melitas, it finally gave them, after two or three years of just being slaughtered in the IPA draft market in Portland, a hometown IPA to run with. And I mean, it, the timing was very charming for us, in that sense. Yeah, yeah. Because the next, years, I mean, the next three, four years mark growth
1: are built on that here and up to both. so uh, let, let's talk a little bit about your growth pattern um you were selling out of the pub out of a with a three barrel brewing system when you were in Decom. then you opened a production uh facility uh by you know 20 2015 let's say uh what was your package mix and what was your volume and how you know how would you grown uh with that expansion and now you've you know, started to see some returns on that IPA. And, and, and where, where were you at as a brewery then?
2: Yeah, we kind of did, you know what we were doing, six or 700 barrels a year in 11 and 12 out of the pub. And then first year in Milwaukee, I think, was somewhere around 3,500 barrels. And then the next year was close to double. You know, 14 was close to double, somewhere around 7,000. And the next year was close to double again. So 15 was somewhere in the 13, 14,000. Yeah, we've gone,
3: gone a three-year period from making 600 barrels a beer a year to 15,000 yeah. barrels a beer a year. Um, and 70, 80% of that was draft at the time.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah, at least. And, um, it's still been, you know, it's still been so heavy draft for us.
1: And were you selling largely, was that largely all in, in uh, Portland, in Oregon, uh, you know, Washington sales? How, how far was your footprint stretching?
2: We're kind of all over the place, but that said, like 75% of our beers are sold within 50 miles of downtown Portland. Okay. And it's kind of been like that the whole time. You know, we picked a few areas where we wanted to travel to. Like, We started selling beer in Hawaii six years ago, uh, the Carolinas, Colorado, British Columbia. Um, and, you know, we started selling in Seattle pretty pretty early too, but, you know, not and Seattle's been good and the rest of Oregon has been really, really good for us, but... You know, we're still, we're right now, and we have been since we opened really 90%, 90% plus Oregon and Washington. Yeah.
3: Our numbers have changed a little bit over the years, but I've always said that, you know, 95% of our beer is sold between the north end of King County and Eugene
1: yeah well i don't want to leap to the future yet uh that seemed like a genius way to sell beer (laughs) uh, until about march but let's not leap there yet because we still have your third facility which uh you haven't you hadn't yet opened by then so you have deacon which is a family pub uh people sit out on the tables outside and drink beers in the afternoon and it's a wonderful place you now have a production facility which is got a tap room but it's really not a, a place that uh, gets a lot of traffic and then you decide to go uh, a third way and w- tell us about that and when was that we
2: opened just over three years ago now so four and a half five years ago we started Oh, i didn't really even want to do another place yet um you know i kept we obviously we'd, we'd start to have real estate folks reaching out to see if we were interested and but this place in Northwest, I, I came and looked with a friend of a friend, and I walked in and I loved the space. And I, I wanted the the idea really was to put kind of a showpiece brewpub in the center of town. You know, like like you said, the Deacon place is kind of far north. It's the south, you know, the south production facility is a thousand miles away. And you know, to have this here in the middle of town. And the first place, you know, the, the Deacon spot. I went to Miller Paint and picked out paint colors and painted the walls, you know, ourselves and. and and that kind of stuff and poured the concrete ourselves. And it was fun to work with designers on this one and real artists, you know, from the mural outside to some of the art that's on the inside. It's, you know, the the amazing over the top, you know, brewery is part of it as well. I mean, when we started looking at it, it just, it just felt right to us. And initially, even when I was talking to, you know, a couple outside folks like, well, there's no need to put a a brewery in it, right? It's, it's going to take up, you know, really high rent space that you could have tables in, and you've got a production facility already, so you don't need to do that. But I don't know that just felt didn't feel right for us. We wanted to really make a have a place where we could, so, you know, make some showcase beers to go with the showcase facility and experiment and, and try new things. So we we opened this just a little bit over. I, I think the our three year anniversary was right about when the lockdown happened. Frankly, oh wow, yeah, <laughs> yeah,
3: that's, yeah, that's,
2: that's fine, awesome. yeah. yeah.
3: I think, Jeff, one thing that's worth pointing out, and I was thinking, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot in the last week, just leading up to this anniversary, is kind of where you know the periodization of like beers and and beer, like uh, sorry, breweries and brewery business in Oregon, and you know, I I, I put us pretty squarely in like this generation of uh, breweries who operate within, what I would still say is like pretty operate tradi- pretty traditionally within the three-tier system. Okay. You know, I think that if you look at the big difference between say breweries that were opening in 2008, 2007, 2009, breweries that have opened in the last, I don't know, four or five years, is you're seeing novel models more and more now that try and kind of exist um, as these taproom breweries right, that aren't real group hubs, but also don't necessarily participate in the retail and the wholesale marketplaces the way that, you know, kind of the the normal paradigm for how you grow a brewery would have been. And I think that that maybe is, like, we're cut from maybe a slightly older cloth in that, um, in part because our growth has been based on that model. But putting, you know, we weren't going to open a bunch of tap rooms around town, to get more prominence, but I think having another restaurant and a marquee location that really served as kind of like a flagship restaurant for us, a flagship experience for our customers, was pretty consistent with that model at that point. You know, beyond having the the distributing brewery and the small original brewpub,
2: and we're still figuring that out. You know, we, we just wanted to have a certain percentage of our beers be passed directly from our hands to the customer. You know, like it's. Fun, I think it's important to control some of that
1: one thing that's super fascinating to me uh with the slab town project this third brewery uh which is in a part of town called slab town is that you you did build a third brewery there so now you know yeah now you have three breweries which i'm sure is a lot mm-hmm. of logistic fun uh but you built a specialized brewery that was optimized to make hoppy beers uh and i know that this is kind of typical in America now, but it departed from that original idea you had where you were, you know, the three barrel brewery was asked to brew a wide, wide range of different styles of beer, uh, everything from, you know, Saison's to uh, hoppy American beers. So when I look at the history of, uh, of brewing, I always am interested in the way culture develops and you know when you go to munich you don't have breweries that are optimized to build to brew a bunch of different beer styles you know they make helices they make lagers so this seemed like a maturation in the marketplace to me when i saw the Slabtown brewery of american brewing it seemed like it had kind of grown up to make the kind of beers that we in america like to drink i don't know how intentional you were thinking or if you had on your ethnographer hat but for me that was kind of a watershed moment here in portland
3: I remember driving to Seattle Beer Week with Scott in 2015 when we were. I think at that point we'd actually signed the lease. I don't remember what they. We, we were committed to the place long before we actually opened here.
1: We were looking at it
3: in the summer. of, if, gosh, if, summer of 15. I'm not gonna know the dates, but but yeah, we we definitely cause we did a big build out here. Yeah, we were talking about the ideas, the concept long before, and and you're absolutely right, Jeff. I mean we. This is I remember the conversation because I remember there was one of our brewers who was with us at the time too. It was kind of spitballing of like, do we do a German style beer hall? Do we do a Belgian beer cafe? Like what how do we thematize like this new location to be something distinct for a breakside customer? And as we started talking about it, I I can't remember exactly how the conversation went, but the idea went to be like, well, no one has done a brewery, in American brewery. We talk about German beer halls, we talk about Belgian beer cafes, English pubs. You know, what would the beer list look like at the American equivalent of that in modern craft beer? You know, it would be a hop for a hop lab, you know, which is maybe the sexiest word to make, kind of customer. <laughs> oh, do you want to go drink at the lab? Uh, but. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, it's that was how we started to think about at least the brewery that we were building out,
1: and that's what it became. I mean, it's it it is a showcase for hoppy beers, and I, well, until until March, I welcomed a lot of people from around the country and around the world, and they always wanted to you know drink American beer when they came to Portland, especially in Portland. Um, and it's it's now become one of those stops that you just got to go to because. Uh, you know, you're, you're going to get, you're going to get your hazies, your session IPAs, saturated pale ales, uh, West coast IPAs, everything, all the IPAs are going to be there. Saturated Saturated pale? pale?
3: I like that.
2: (laughs) And Ben and I are actually drinking lagers right now that were made here as well. So the system can do other things, you know, with, with, with good efficiency.
1: Fair, fair point yeah (laughs) it seems like it would be a little bit crazy not to make a brewery that could do other things yeah (laughs) okay well uh let's talk about 2020 arrives and you guys are very excited uh to do uh your anniversary your 10-year anniversary uh celebration kind of a year-long celebration you had slated out uh, all these wonderful collaborations you were going to do two kind of tracks of collaborations one is for with, with local breweries uh, Oregon breweries that would be draft only and then national breweries which you would put in cans and uh, you're going to release one of these I guess every other week is that right? Is my math correct? Well, yeah, the, yeah. Oregon, yeah. Year. yeah. And that was clicking along people who listen to this podcast will know that uh, you sponsored uh, us for a couple of months and we were talking about those beers and drinking those beers and it was really cool and then March came along. <laughs> Let's, let's pretend March didn't happen and let, let's just start there because it was a fun idea and it would have been a wonderful celebration of brewing in America.
3: Well, I, I want to be careful what I say because last time I was on the podcast, Jeff, was in March and uh, I believe I said something along the lines <laughs> of we were talking about beer bars in Portland, about how, you know, we you have these places that rotate everything, places where it breaks IPA and free pills are still your go-to beer. And both, i think I said something along the lines of both those places are doing great in late March, 2020. And I feel like I just I I caused the entire thing. It's my shouldn't it's <laughs> have said that. So uh, <laughs> I I think we we are still excited, right? It's just yeah. this is incredibly—it's a huge challenge, right? This is an incredible challenge that we have to face to. From a kind of business point of view, it doesn't mean that like our brewing, our tenth anniversary, the things that we do, the projects we take on, are any less fun. They may be higher stakes, they may have to scale different sizes, we may have to act a little bit smarter than we did during the salad days of twenty sixteen, seventeen. Where we could do anything and it would stick. And maybe we don't get to do them on the time frame that we wanted, but I think i mean we're still making all these collaboration beers we're gonna release every one of them you know and i think that like to me it's a tough time but like I get, as, a, as a company as an identity it's, it's unchanged and we want to make these beers, make them amazing fun exciting and like landmark beers and, and collaborations
2: yeah and jeff we you know the, the one we we're going to have coming out soon all of our in-state ones we're going to be all draft Right. But we're taking those now and putting them in bottles and cans. So, oh, cool. You know, like, for instance, the, the barley brown ones.
3: Well, the cream one will be out first.
2: Cream one will be in bottles, right? In cans. Oh, we have cans. Yeah, oh, cool. All right, and then and then the barley brown one uh, will be out right after that, also in cans in sixteen ounce cans.
1: So, talk about these beers. Let's uh, let's hear about them.
2: Well, let me. But then i will talk about the details. Let me say first, like one thing I loved. One of the things I loved about this industry, outside of the fact that I get to eat and drink with my friends all the time, is wait. Like, Right off the bat, like in the spirit of our 10th year, this collaboration thing, as we talked about it, is when we, even when we first got into this industry, we didn't know anybody that the other breweries that would help us out, you know, from getting knowledge from the Ninkasi's and Widmer letting us use their lab and just learning things from these breweries and the collaboration process in the whole beer world has always has been absolutely amazing to me, you know, and, and I used to sell software. I would never get with, together with my competitors in the software world and talk about, how much we sold our, our packages for and what they did and all that kind of stuff. So just, you know, that's always just so of refreshing, even with how competitive this industry is now, even compared to what it was 10 years ago, how we're still able to get together with, you know, the two breweries we just mentioned, like Freeman and Barley Browns, right? Two of the, two of the best breweries, Pacific Northwest. And, and we get together with them, make beers together. And, and, you know, it's just this collaborative process. That's amazing. You don't find, you know, really in any other industry that I know of. Yeah. So that, that's just a cool part of the process, and, and Ben can chat about what the beers are specifically.
3: Yeah. Uh, so the free beer was actually it was available on draft. We did a we had we had a draft batch of it, and then we had brewed or uh, right in late March had brewed this second batch, the lager. Um, and so it's now finally uh, coming out in cans. We had to kind of lager it a little longer than we might have normally in order to get it ready uh, or get the cans ready, I should say, but. It's uh, what we call the West Coast Pils. Um, Josh and Gavin and I, and Dylan Norby, who's our uh, head R&D brewer here at Slabtown. He, the three of us, four of us, sorry, worked on kind of this concept of like taking something that was a really, uh, an American hop pilsner, um, but that was not dry hop and it was not an IPL. You would taste and it was still identifiably like kind of classic lager but used and relied on more contemporary American hop flavors. So it's a mosaic and strata pills, but it doesn't present, you know, if I told you I was making uh, a pale beer with mosaic and strata, um, it it tastes quite different than I think what most people would imagine a normal breakside beer of that strength and milk would be. And then the fun one, I mean, that one's fun, but we did a fun one with Barley Brown's as well. It's called Wander Jack, uh, which is, you know, a portmanteau there of, uh, Uh Wanderlust and Pallet jack, because we couldn't come up with any better name than that. That worked. Uh, Wander Jack is I asked those guys we as kind of a thought problem, I was like, Well, what if you know, anytime you make a new IPA, anytime a it breaks somebody that's on a new IPA or I'm sure at Barley Brown, you're always doing it relative to the other beers you already make, right? So you can't just do a beer that's like, very, very close to Wanderlust or very, very close to Pallet Jack. And you have to differentiate it. It might be because of hop contracts, it might be because you just don't want them to all taste the same. You know, there's different reasons. You might want to be challenging yourself to work with different hops and different fault bills. And so you're never really designing an IPA like from the ground. It's always within the context of the other IPAs you're already making. And I asked Tyler and Eli. If you were to open Barley Browns today and had never made any of these other IPAs, and we were opening Breakside today and never made any other IPA, what would an I what would your flagship IPA look like in twenty twenty? What would be that beer? And so Water Jack is the beer we designed. <laughs> wow,
1: that's quite a, a lead in. Uh, I feel that I want to taste that beer now.
2: Yeah, it better be effing good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it is a pretty big lead in.
2: <laughs>
3: you better deliver. Yeah, and then we've got, uh, I'm actually tasting the pub batch right now, but it's the uh, as-yet-unnamed collaboration we do with Upright. Uh, So Alex and I got together. I think um, we brewed this March 17th, like as Shelter-in-Place was about to start, and it's a uh,
2: oyster stout saison with cherries.
3: It's, it's, yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's a, uh, now no one's going to hear This will be the I just yeah. uh, it's, a, it's a kind of, we're calling it a, a Belgian-style farmhouse ale, but it's a, it's a lager also. It's a hybrid lager, Cezanne, using um, some magnolia berry and some really characterful California malt. It's just kind of a quirky beer that... Um, you no, know, will be a brewer's beer. It's kind of our Taras Bulba uh, type beer. Ah, interesting.
1: Well, that is, uh, that that's a wonderful little reference for anyone who knows your background, because back in those, that 2010 day, Taras Bulba was kind of a little cult beer here in Portland and I know uh, Alex especially uh, was, had really been inspired by that beer. So that's cool.
3: And we brought in 3711 to brew this, which was the original Upright strain, which you know, during right. that time that I worked part-time at Upright was the strain that we were working with. So it, it's near and dear to both Alex's and my heart. It's also just a uh, very persnickety strain to work with. Right, which is why he abandoned it.
1: Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> that kind of leads naturally into questions of um, what, 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 what the world looks like for you guys now that um you know everybody had to throw their business models out in in march um did i hear you scott correctly say that you had that 70% of your beer was on, was is had been sold on draft prior to uh, uh march
2: yeah within a percentage point or two of that yeah so that's bad yeah it's not it's not ideal um <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's wild to be you know we were sitting thinking about a new new facility and if we rent our production facility and it's it's not laid out as efficiently as possible and we were thinking about a new one and things are going great and now our you know our revenues are are back to where they were and you know our production revenues over the last two months are back to where they were in 2015 um, about 50 per square a little less than a little more than rather than 50 percent down from where we were. Uh, same time last year
1: so how are you adapting and what's your game plan
2: yeah you know we, we I think there was like the first you know we we got on the horn I remember like right away and had you know a bunch of stressful yet uh you know, somewhat fun yeah that's a weird word to use right there but you know sometimes coming up with a battle plan is, is just I don't know it's uh, enticing and stimulating and so right off the bat, we decided for the first time to put our, our two, you know, classic beers, the Breaks IPA and the Wanderlust uh, IPA in six packs. So we'd never done that before. And unfortunately, the, you know, even with being kind of the some of the first people to put in new orders, the lead time on getting new six pack carriers was, you know, eight weeks. So we just got those in uh, in the last couple of days. And we're, we're, I think we bottled Wanderlust today, IPA today. So, you know, we've got that stuff working um, and, you know, so we're just kind of changed that model. You know, that 70% of our business is gone, but our other 30% is up by about 50%. So, you know, then that gets us to that, about half revenue where we were before. And so we, we pulled the trigger on those six packs. We also, you know, this is, I don't know, I don't, well, well, I just hadn't thought about this, but it's not a big deal. We, we are pulling the trigger on a, a good size canning line uh and doing that this week wow so yeah i just kind of woke up monday and said i want to do this and i wanted i want to put the order in on our 10th anniversary so you know and we we toyed around with it and toyed around with doing a couple different options but you know now that the way things have gone we just have to you know i, don't, I just don't know the drafts will be back to where it was in february for two years so we have to figure out a way because people are still drinking right and we want to figure out a way to get the a beer to them and so we're we're buying a canning line and going to put you know i don't know potentially Wonderlust. i'm not we're not sure yet it, but put it in in 12 ounce you know and 16 ounce cans and 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 push it out there
1: and will this be uh will you will it just be those two or are you looking to put more of your line into cans or uh, develop a can uh, a line that would be more appropriate for cans or have you thought that far
3: I think that those those yeah. questions are hard because I we're in some ways it's not expansion mode, right? Almost right. always, this is this is recovery recovery, and I, you know not to be drastic, but yeah, it is recovery, recovery. mode. It's, I think of it as like in some ways we've had this very charmed ten-year run
2: where outside of my white chest hairs and
3: podcasts at night, but yes, <laughs> yeah, early yeah. white yeah. chest yeah. Years, yeah. right? Yeah. You know. Uh, but where, but at the same time, like, I don't, I think that if we, we had to jump at some growth that was pretty big, pretty quickly that made us kind of position, pushed us in certain directions, you know, in terms of the model that we had, like we, you know, had probably had a choice. We could even said, okay, we're not going to grow as fast as we're going to grow, but we're going to sacrifice some level of control over like, you know, how many tanks do we have? Do we can yet, things like that. And in some ways, like this is going to wind the clock back to a smaller volume for us. And we have to grow back to where we are. And the goal is to do that as rapidly as we can. But in some ways, I think this might ultimately allow us to become the, a brewery that's more from a kind of portfolio yeah. and package draft mix. Like It's just better set up than where we were a, yeah. even six months ago. Six months ago, we were running into... It was great. Everything was great, but we're also, we were maxing out a facility where we were not as efficient as we could be, and we weren't in cans and couldn't get a canning line, but now we're a little bit of a smaller brewery again.
2: Yeah, and Jeff, we sold, you know, I know we did some, started doing some six-packs last year, glass, with a few new beers, but, you know, we were still selling, you know, 90, we were brewery doing nearly 30,000 barrels, or roughly 30,000 barrels doing, you know, 95-plus percent of that in kegs and 22-ounce glass, which is you just don't see a ton of that these days,
1: yeah. right? Yeah, for a brewery your it's size, cool. it's it's surprising to see those yeah. draft numbers.
2: And our our distributors, frankly, all of our distributors, from folks in you know Colorado and the Carolinas to Seattle and Portland, have been asking us about putting IPA and Wonderlust in cans for the last four years. So they're, I you know, the only one we've told is Meletus, but I, I think they're going to be, you know, I know they they're busy, they have a lot going on, but I, I think it's going to be a. A a fun opportunity and and just a a good overall project for us.
1: Well, that's exciting. I think people will be uh, delighted to hear that they're going to be able to buy those beers in in six packs. Uh... You're the first one to really know outside of the brewery.
3: So if you you can put in uh, your request for different brands at this point, you know, like if there's anything you want to see especially, let let me know. It's
2: it's really it's really scary though. Like we we've only talked about this internally, and I've sort of told my wife, but like, you know, we're making a major you know, major purchase and, and it, some infrastructure at a time when our revenues are 50% of what they were, you know, what they were three months ago. So it's, uh, it's, I don't know, it's just, it's just kind of, it's just, I feel like it's something that's smart of us and it's, and it's, uh, I don't know, it's risky.
3: Right. Well, 10 years from now, yeah. if we do the 20th anniversary yeah. podcast, then yeah. this will either have turned out to be a very smart move <laughs> or a very, very bad move. Yeah well if
1: yeah if we do the 20th uh, anniversary podcast it will have been smart uh, <laughs> so uh, let's hope that we do that yeah um all right guys i'm gonna let you go uh, with with my thanks i do want to say uh one thing that bears mentioning uh you we couldn't have your whole team here but breakside does have one of the most impressive brewing crews uh going right now uh you mentioned jacob leonard who uh uh what's his title uh he's the
3: director of brewing operations.
1: okay uh and, and i think a lot of people know him but there are folks like uh natalie baldwin and daniel hines who are working on a cool project with the beer historian english beer historian ron pattinson to do a recreation of one of his recipes um uh, you've just got depth all the way down and i think one of the reasons we see such interesting and uh high quality beers coming out of the breweries is because you do have such a great team. And I wanted to mention some of those folks who may not get the same kind of love and attention uh, as, as everybody else in the brewery, but from top to bottom, you've done great work. And I think it shows in all the beers that you make.
2: Yeah. And that's a hundred. Thanks Jeff. That's a hundred percent Ben. I am, I am smart enough to know that I give Ben what he needs and stay out of the way. And he's the team he's put together and the folks we have are just awesome. And the, the tenure that, a lot of those people have, have been with Breakside, and I know they get other opportunities, but the fact that they've stayed with us is you know, pretty cool, and it feels pretty good as, again, we're celebrating year 10 right now. Pretty neat.
1: Yeah, it is pretty neat. Uh, it's not a neat time in the industry, but it's wonderful to talk to a brewery that's still feeling good about things and uh, moving forward and making interesting beers. That is a little bit of hopefulness, a, a ray of sunshine in this dark time. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. And thank you, guys. Uh, and definitely, let me be the first to wish you uh, another uh, successful ten years.
3: <laughs> thank
1: you. Thanks. We'll, right. uh, we'll pin you
3: to that twentieth that anniversary podcast ten years from now.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> probably won't be a podcast, but whatever it is, we'll do it, right? For a virtual hologram cast. That's very, right. Virtual. That's right. We'll uh, we'll do it from our neural implants.
3: Yes. <laughs> Uh, Thanks, Jeff. Thanks so much for having
1: us. All right. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate
0: it. Wow. Good job, Jeff. And thanks a lot to Scott Lawrence and Ben Edmonds for taking the time to sit down and
1: uh, talk. Indeed. And congratulations on making it 10 years.
0: Yeah. 10 years. That's awesome. It's too bad it has to happen in this time. But yeah, we'll we'll get a chance to celebrate
1: soon. We will indeed. And uh, we'll celebrate privately uh, on our own so that's right
0: all right a few words going out please subscribe on apple soundcloud spotify stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to rate us five stars please that helps other listeners find the show uh we'd love to hear from you so please send your questions comments to jeff at beerbonna blog.com or on twitter at beer pod uh jeff blogs at the Beervana blog and he tweets at, at Beervana.
1: and patrick tweets at beernomics
0: all right. Uh, actually, I'm not drinking beer right now. I have, I have a, I have a, I have a cup of tea. I have a mug of tea.
1: And I have uh, a, I have a mug of coffee. So we are, uh, we're on the same page. <laughs> All right. It's kind of like a
0: transatlantic uh, cheers. That's so. right.
1: <laughs> You're so representing the crown, and I've got, uh, I've got the Yankee Doodle coffee here.
0: <laughs> All right, man. Cheers. Cheers. X-ray.